This week's episode of the Velo News Podcast is brought to you by Travel Texas, which reminds riders around the country that Texas is one of the best places to ride and race bikes. In Austin, folks race their bikes at the weeknight Austin Driveway Series, one of the largest and most dynamic racing communities in the country. There are races for the pros, the weekend warriors, and even the kids. You might even spot unbound gravel winner Colin Strickland or world tour rider and Olympian Lawson Craddock there. The Tour de France just ended, but San Antonio is already set to host La Tape San Antonio by the Tour de France in 2022. This event, with three different distances, is put on by ASO, the same organization that runs the Tour de France. Although La Tape hosts events all over the world, La Tape San Antonio will be the first event of its kind in the United States. And of course, you don't need an event to explore and enjoy Texas, from the flat coastal cruises around Corpus Christi Bay to wildflower loops in the Texas Hill Country. There's a riding adventure for every skill level. Let's ride. Let's Texas. Okay, let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the Villain News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you. Busy Tuesday morning here at the home offices. Uh, historic, historic podcast today. We have all sorts of uh, milestones in history to talk about. Everything from Jennifer Valente becoming the first woman to win a track cycling Olympic medal to the United States to potentially even a bigger milestone, which is me turning 40 tomorrow. That's right. Tomorrow. Is my 40th birthday. Today is my last day in the 30s. And what a way to celebrate uh, such a milestone is to uh, record a podcast with one of my favorite co-hosts, that being Mr. Andrew Hood. Andy, you're back from vacation. You're looking tanned and rested and ready to just uh, empty your brain into the podcast. How are you feeling? That's right. My frontal lobe is even tanned. You know, I just sat on the beach for 12 days in Formentera, which... If anybody is looking for the best beaches in Europe, go to Formentera. Don't go in August because you won't be by yourself. But if you went in May, June, September, absolutely spectacular, crystal clear water, great food, paella, you know, just a great place to unplug for a week or so. Ah, vacation cast. This is great. I think we're going to have to uh, maybe skip some of the items on the rundown here and just ask Andy about uh, more questions about his vacation. Um, before we get into all of the fun cycling things, we're going to talk about Jen, uh, Jen Valente's big win. We're going to preview the Vuelta España, which is coming up this weekend. And then in the second half of the show, I have an interview with Lauren DiCrescenzo, the winner of Unbound Gravel, who's going to be battling for the win at Steamboat Gravel this coming weekend. Lauren uh, tells us a bit about her story recovering from a traumatic brain injury, how she is now a full-time cyclist after working for the CDC. Just really one of these kind of amazing stories from uh, American cycling. And we're going to hear from her after we talk about all the uh, the news and stuff like that. But before that, Hoodie, I, I, you know, give us a bit of a, a lowdown. Where is where is this beach community that you went to? Where where the where can the good listeners find out about the best beaches in Europe? Yeah, I mean Formentera is one of the Balearic Islands of Spain. It's it's uh, just offshore from Ibiza, Ibiza, you know, the famous party islands. But Formentera, they, they put like a, a, a stop construction, you know, thirty years ago. So there's no big hotels, uh, just a couple of small villages. Um, just the beaches are are you know there's it's the it's the wildest beaches left really in the Mediterranean coast. But it's not just the beaches, it's the water is spectacular. It's a big natu natural, natural park around uh, these beaches. And, you know, you go snorkeling, you see lots of fish. And it's just, uh, you know, it's the place to go. Now, is this the typical European beach scene where it's like big German dudes and little Speedos and people walking around in the nude? Um, give me a little, a little more sense for what I could expect if I descend on the beach there. Yeah, you better bring your Mantenga if you go to Formentera, Fred. <laughs> You know, you'll be, you'll be, you'll, you'll fit right in. Oh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I think August is Italian month. Uh, half of Italy seemed to invade Formentera this past week. Uh, the Germans do go there. Not a lot of Brits. They usually sit at Ibiza with the boom, boom, boom music scene over there. So, but Formentera, I mean, if you're looking to chill out and unplug it, it's, it's superb. It's really worth, worthwhile. Oh, that, thank you so much from our European vacation correspondent, Andrew Hood. Um, I would have pegged you as more of an Ibiza boom, boom, boom guy than uh, hang out in the beaches in the Mankini 
But that just shows how much I know about you, Andy. Although I can, I can see from the smile on your face and just the glint in your eye that you are very well rested. So we're glad that you've been able to decompress. This is the dog days of summer, everyone. You should all be getting in your end of summer vacations before the kids go back to school. So find a beach, find a mountain lake, go, go chill out. Um, Hoodie, let's talk bike racing. So last week on the pod, Sive and I were breaking down the successes and the woes of USA Cycling at the Olympics. You know, USA Cycling set out to win seven medals. They have ended up with three. But this 2021 Olympics has really ended on a high note for USA Cycling because Jennifer Valente captures the gold in the Omnium, you know, first track victory for the for Team USA since uh, since 2000. So 21 years, first American uh, gold medal in a track event ever. And, you know, and it and it comes from Jen Valente, who he had written before the Olympics was sort of this new queen of American track racing. You know, forever. Sarah Hammer was the real star of the American track program, competing in multiple events, you know, really captaining the women's team pursuit squad. Sarah Hammer retires after 2017 and Valente really fills that role. I know you got to spend some time with her at the um, world championships in 2020. I mean, what was your perspective of Valente at that race and sort of the, the role that she was playing within the team pursuit and the track team when you saw them in action then? Yeah. You could really see at the Berlin track worlds, how, uh, her and Chloe Dagger were kind of stepping into that leadership role on the team, how they were both kind of taking control because everyone else on the team was relatively new coming in. Uh, they're bringing in, rotating in new riders after Sarah Hammer retired. And uh, it was almost a rebuilding process really from the team from uh, from 2016. And you can see Valente really just taking on that, that leadership role. She's a steady kind of person, kind of a low-key personality. She's not real flamboyant really, uh, you know, not real outspoken like some of the other uh, track riders can be. Um, but man, that steady presence really paid off in the Omnium. Quite a complicated, uh, you know, multi-event race to try to handle that different, you know, different scenarios in every race. And it really kind of revealed, I think, the strength of her character. And then again, to get the bronze for the team uh, women's pursuit, you know, uh, they had silver, you know, they wanted the gold, but even to get that bronze felt like gold, I think, for that team after what they had gone through. Yeah, it's funny. I've been talking to... Valentes and people in her life uh, ever since her win. I talked to her dad yesterday and coaches and stuff like that. And I've been asking them, like, what's a word you used to describe Jennifer Valente? And kind of everyone has sort of said analytic, you know, like, well, you know, she might not be the most flashy, flamboyant person, but she's a real thinker, you know, she's like really sort of analyzing and kind of serious about the situation. And that was my assessment when I sat down for what, three hours worth of interviews with her too, you know, she wanted to know why I was asking that question. She was very sort of, you know, had this almost mathematic approach to, um, to cycling and the interview and you know it really did shine in the omnium like like you said andy you know the omnium (laughs) when i was down there at usc cycling i met one of their coaches this british guy i can't remember his name i apologize but he approached me he said you know i did my uh master's thesis on the omnium or like this phd or something on the omnium like not just the you know physiology but sort of the strategy and the points and the this that and the other and i was like my word what other bike race could you do an entire like you know phd or master's thesis on that but you can i mean you it's made of these four events there's a scratch race tempo race elimination race and then points race and there are these points that are accrued for your finish in the first three races and then you take the points from the points race and layer that on top of it to create to crown this champion and you know riders have to be strong they have to you know when you watch that olympic race you realize that jen valenti is very strong she's impeccable bike handling skills but she also just has this sixth sense knowledge of like where she is in the standings, who's closer in the standings, where there are points coming up, how you need to go about getting those points. And you roll it all together and you end up with this victory that I feel like is bigger than the sum of all its parts. Like I was blown away by the way she approached the Omnium. You know, I think really the crux of the entire race happened in the first race of the four events, which was the scratch race where, you know, three laps to go or so, there's this huge crash that takes down the reigning gold medalist, Laura Kenny, and a bunch of other pre-race favorites. And Valenti's like right there and you watch the slow motion reviews and she's just able to kind of steer her bike onto the black part of the track. There's 
bodies and bikes flying everywhere and she escapes out of it and then two laps later she wins the sprint which puts her in pole position for the rest of the race but you know with so many of these pre-race favorites taken down it really came down to this like accident avoidance slash bike handling skills that that gave her an advantage in that moment yeah it's a, it's a very good description of, of the what the omnium is they have changed the events over the years I and mean, they used to have a 1k uh, time trial race in there as well I think that probably helped her by having that, not having that in the race. Um, you know, then you also have the elimination race, which requires a lot of thinking as well as bike racing skills. You know, you got to know where you got to be. It's pretty easy to get gapped out. And then, of course, the points race is the one that's really confusing because it's, you know, every five or eight laps, you know, they have the points round. And so you really have to be keep your eyes open of where people are on the course and what, you know, where you need to be at the appropriate time to pick up those points because it doesn't matter if you're in first place and if it's not a, a bell lap. So uh, I love watching the track cycling. Actually, I was kind of bummed out that I missed it uh, this year because, uh, you know, you, you don't get the chance to watch track racing that much. We watch it during the Olympics, you know, maybe during the world championships once in a while, you know, obviously it doesn't have that big following that, that road racing does. And it's interesting that the UCI working with Eurosport is going to create this new kind of uh, championship league type of concept going into uh, the next Olympic cycle that they hope to kind of carry on and build on the interest of track cycling. They're doing four events this first of this next fall and going into next winter, and they're changing the day of the world championships, which is kind of controversial within track cycling. But it's going to be a chance to showcase track cycling to a broader audience. It's going to be broadcast live on Eurosport and the GCN uh, network. So, I'm hopeful that track racing will get more of its due because in terms of watching a bike race, track racing is way more exciting uh, than, than a road race, in my opinion, in many ways. Yeah, and it's shorter. Oh, my God. Like, you know, I watched the uh, parts of the Omnium and watched that entire points race. And it was like, you know, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, the whole thing was like done and it was very exciting and it was edge of your seat stuff. And I'll say, Hoodie, the number of texts that I got from my buddies outside of the cycling world, like high school friends and stuff like that, who are like, oh my God, track cycling is insane. I love it. You know, I think I didn't see the Madisons, but I think the Madisons, you know, there was crashing and there was chaos. And, you know, after they, I think they must have shown some on NBC because I had, had buddies that were just like, do you cover this? How could I not know about this? This is insane. And it is that sort of, hey, Mabel, head slapping kind of reaction that speaks to the potential for greater interest in there. But there's always been just some like the big gap there that keeps like people from really jumping on the track bandwagon, even though every four years it gets the boost. So I don't know, maybe this UCI thing will be the like on ramp that they need. I'm, I'm still kind of dubious about that. Yeah. And it's interesting too, with track cycling, you know, there's so many events uh, during the Olympic cycle. That's a great way to target Olympic medals for a cyclist. Uh, you see a lot of countries have done a great job doing that. Of course, uh, Team GB, Australia, Denmark, Italy. You know, a lot of those future roadies come through the Team Pursuit programs. I mean, Bradley Wiggins, you know, won more gold medals than he ever won uh, Tour de France's. Great uh, track racing pedigree there. So it's one thing I've always, uh, you know, the U.S. cycling needs trying to build out its track cycling program because, you know, not a lot of presence really in the men's Team Pursuit not a you know a lot of its money. You got to invest a lot of money, a lot of training, a lot of track time, uh, convincing riders to work on the track. Whereas you know in other countries there's a pretty good runway from the track into the pro scene, and that doesn't quite exist yet in the United States. And they've been trying to build that out also on the sprint side of things. You know, not a lot of presence right now on the men's or women's sprint. Um, but you know, Marty Nostine won the the men men's individual sprint in 2000. The only American to win that gold medal, and that is kind of the marquee sprint uh, event on the track. So there is the history there. Of course, going back to Major Taylor, you know, the legend back in the day of track racing. So uh, big opportunity, really, I think, for USA Cycling if they can get you know get the right sponsors. You know, the coaching is there. You know, they need to get the athletes going on to the track. You know, it's a big ask. You know, if you can make a lot of money on the road, it's pretty hard to dedicate yourself to the track, uh, you know, really giving up the financial side of things. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what role Valente herself plays in that going forward. I mean, anytime you have an Olympic champion, it's an opportunity for a sport to promote that person and that promote that person's success to get new people into the sport. And I do feel like what you said, you know, uh, track can be this 
on-ramp into cycling. And I mean, that's the story of Jennifer Valente herself. You know, she grew up riding in San Diego, got really heavily involved with the San Diego Velodrome, started doing the Tuesday night series there. And it was those experiences that like convinced her to stay on the track. And she's talked about it was fun. And you're mixing it up with senior riders and junior riders and learning how to work on your bike. And there's very this inclusive um, attitude. And, and you hear about that at like T-Town and some of these other storied um, velodromes that have been there for a while. But, you know, you also hear stories of like, you know, municipalities trying to build velodromes and running out of money. And there's always been this like white whale of, you know, the velodrome in, you know, adjacent to the like, you know, lower income neighborhood is going to be sort of the pathway for cycling to like reach a whole new demographic. And I don't know. I think that the jury is still out on that, but I, I guess I really am interested to see um, what role Valente is going to play for that. And Valente, look, she's Valente's friend of Velenews. She will undoubtedly be on this podcast. We couldn't get her for this podcast. She was in the midst of traveling back from Tokyo and like dealing with like the melee of being an Olympic champion. But uh, Mike, mark my word, listeners, we will have Jennifer Valente on, on the podcast and we will pose some of these uh, questions to her to see what her response is, because I'm really curious about that myself. Hoodie, you know, uh, Sive and I talked about this a bit last week. I'm interested to get your take on it, which is, you know, three, four years ago, USA Cycling outlined this very, very ambitious target of seven medals for the Olympics. They are coming away with three. I think that you can look at the individual um, successes and failures and point to very specific moments in time. Chloe Digert's crash at the 2020 World Championships, Connor Fields crashing in the BMX. But when you look at that Delta between where they wanted to be with seven medals and where they ended up being with three medals, what, what's your feedback there? Well, I think, yeah, you hit it on, uh, you know, right there with uh, some bad luck and crashes. Um, certainly when you look at the, the road side of things uh, that certainly took the wind out of the sails of Chloe Dygert. I mean, she was, you know, if she was healthy, she would have been certainly a medal favorite, if not a gold medal favorite for the time trial. And I think that's what was the expectation was that she would be recovered really in time for the Olympics from her crash, you know, at the end of uh, 2019. Um, you know, and then also I think that number was elevated too because we had BMX. You know, we had the BMX freestyle came on this year as a new medal event, and we actually the USA Cycling got a medal out of that. Um, plus, you had the, the BMX race, so there were you know uh, six medals just in BMX. So I think that you know the expectations were that they would medal at least in the the race and the freestyle and BMX side expectation of meddling in the women's road, at least time trial, if not the road race and even the outside expectation of a medal in the men's time trial. Whereas, you know, at the end of the day, Brandon McNulty sixth, I think that was the best men's road race result since Finney was fourth in 2012. So not a bad race. I mean, McNulty was, you know, right there. He had the medal, you know, five Ks to go. Had he, could he had stayed with a Carapaz in that last little hump? You know, he might have gotten that medal. Um, so it's just the way, you know, it can break one way or the other. I think three out of seven is not that bad of a number that's in line with the historic average over the last, you know, since 1984, the Americans have at least medaled at every Olympics since then. And, you know, halfway through, through these games, people were wondering, you know, could the United States not medal at all? So it really came down to the track and BMX. And so that half of the team really delivered and kind of kept the USA cycling in the medal, you know, categories at least out of the Olympics. And there's a lot to learn from this experience. And I think that, uh, you know, the question is, can they broaden the track program to get get a team, men's team pursuit qualified, as well as get some more sprinters going in there, a lot of medals available there, which they're not competing for right now. And then also just trying to, I think, build out and get more, uh, riders into the road races on the men's side. We just had two riders, so it's pretty hard to medal when you're competing against five rider teams for the top qualifications. So USA, I think, needs to build on their qualification to get full rosters into all these medal events because, you know, I think walking away from these Olympics, you know, it, it wasn't that bad. Yeah. I think that, you know, when you look at we knew going into this Olympics that most of the medal opportunities were going to be in women's cycling, whether it was, you know, Kate Courtney and Haley Batten in mountain biking, whether it was uh, BMX and um, track cycling, sort of like the, the favorites were all, you know, Chloe's, Jen Valente, that type of stuff. So I think that when you really look at 
the opportunity to build up. It's sort of where it's always been, which is in men's road racing, men's track cycling, uh, and men's mountain biking, where, you know, there's been a lot of banging your head against the wall and trying to come up with new ways to do it and cultivate talent, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not there yet. And maybe it's a combination of, you know, funneling kids from Nika. Maybe it's a combination of, you know, more of a home base in Europe. I know like the U.S. is not fielding a squad for the Tour de Lavenir coming up, which is a huge bummer. But um, you look at it, it kind of comes back to the same old story, which is like our uh, men's cyclists, are good and we love them and we embrace them and we cheer for them. But on a global stage, it's really hard to compete with Colombia and Ecuador and the Netherlands and GB. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these nations do still have a lot of uh, big money backing them. Like Colombia is the exception. There's not a lot of support there. That's just a outgrowth of just the natural talent in Colombia hitting the top of the, of the pro ranks. But, you know, these countries like all the European nations, you know, they're receiving federal money. You know, the Team GB, they still get uh, lottery money or, you know, the money from the federal government, Australia, all the big, uh, you know, kind of traditional cycling powerhouses just have these huge, massive budgets that just dwarf what USA Cycling has. And so that's why, you know, they have to make their choices. Like, you know, where can we where can we best have the best chance to, to get a medal? And that's why they built a team around uh, uh, Valente and Chloe to build a women's uh, team pursuit because they knew that was their best chance to get a medal. And the team's men's team pursuit effort, it's way off the back, but it's very, very expensive. You need coaches, you need training, track time, travel, dedicated staff, dedicated riders. And it's pretty hard to go in there and try to compete against all those established teams on these certain events. Yeah, especially when one of those teams has like a Filippo Ganna who's as strong as two and a half, maybe three guys in the Italians. Oh, we have some crying in the background. Oh, no, baby strikes again at the... Uh at the podcast, the Home Office podcast. Sorry about that, everyone. <laughs> um, I think that might be our our, uh, our bell to pivot onto the other big talking point um, that I want to ask you about, Hoodie, which is the upcoming Vuelta España starts this weekend. You are traveling to the start. You'll be at some of the stages, um, and it's going to be a great Vuelta. And as always, Andy Hood, the Vuelta is the last chance saloon for our Grand Tour racers with... Guys who, you know, maybe succeeded earlier in the year, had a bad tour to France, looking for some way to salvage uh, the 2021 season. So as we head into this Vuelta, I mean, what are the biggest storylines from a GC perspective that you're keeping your eyes on? Like what what storylines do you feel like are going to define the 2021 Vuelta? Well, I, I kind of push back a little bit on that, con- that, that kind of a concept of what the Vuelta is, is this kind of leftover race. I think that was what it used to be, but I think over the last uh, 20 years, you know, the Vuelta has really stepped up to be on par with the Giro, uh, to be almost probably more prestigious than, than the Giro, you could argue, because of, you know, where it comes on the calendar. It's like you can do the Giro-Welta combo or you can do the Tour-Welta combo. Not many riders do the Giro-Tour combo anymore just because, you know, if you want to be at your best at the Tour you know, you're not going to be going a month through Italy ahead of that effort. So the Welta, you know, it's, it's a lot harder race than it used to be. That The profiles are brutal, as well as the level and, and depth of competition at the Welta. This year, having said that, uh, I have to say, start list maybe is not as deep as we're used to seeing over the last few years. And you know, a couple of names, you know, Pogacar is not there. A few other guys aren't there. Not to say it's not a good field. Um, but I think that the, uh, the Welta this year is going to be really a showdown between uh, Ineos and Yumbo, you know, we're seeing that story repeat itself almost at every Grand Tour. That kind of just shows you how strong and deep both of those teams are, how rich they are, how much money they have, as well as, um, you know, UAE without Pogacar, you know, they don't really have a team really for this, for this Welta. So we've seen that team really over the last uh, week, you know, picking up some top riders, George Bennett, Almeida, uh, a few other guys coming across to UAE, which is going to give that team a lot more depth going across all the big grand tours going into 2022 and beyond as well, not always helping out Pogaccia. So, you know, we got Mikel Landa, Movistar is always there. Uh, Vlazov is going to be looking to build on his big ride last year. Uh, Hugh Carthy, EF, always has a strong team. Roman Bardet is going to be there. 
So there'll be plenty, plenty to keep us interested over the next three weeks. So with Roglic, he's going for history in that uh, it sounds like no three in a row is this the current record for winning uh, winning Welta GCs. No one has won more than three in a row. So he is trying to tie that. I guess a question that I'm going to keep my eyes out with him is um, after a big disappointment like the tour um, where he wasn't able to finish the race. Um, you know, last the last two years, we've seen him finish the tour and do very well there and then, you know, rest and recover and then be ready for the Welta. Um, is he still going to be able to mount that level of fitness having not had the Tour de France in his legs? We saw him do very well at the Olympics. He won the TT. But like, does that is there going to be something missing there because he didn't have three weeks of Tour de France racing? Um, in his leg. So that's one thing I'm keeping my uh, my eyes open for. And then the other one is this Ineos lineup with three, on paper, very strong GC riders in Richard Carapaz, Egan Bernal, and Adam Yates. And, you know, with this Welta having some pretty challenging mountain stages appearing in the first week, the first 10 days, um, are we going to see a pecking order established that soon? Are people going to be kind of uh, out for their own ambitions? Will everyone rally behind Bernal at some point? So, you know, the progress of Roglic without a tour in his legs and then Ineos with these very three very strong leaders uh, are two things I'm keeping an eye on. Yeah, you're right. The the first mountaintop finish is stage three, Pico Blanco. It's a hard, uh, hard climb, by the way. Um, and then we have uh, kind of just scattered through that next week uh, a couple of transition stages coming out of Burgos. Once we hit the, go- uh, the Mediterranean coast down there, kind of every second, third day, there's a punchy finish here. There's a mountaintop finish there. We go to Vela Fuque, which where Ryder Hedgedal won way back in the day. They call that the Alpe d'Huez of southern Spain. Kind of a twist back. You turn and climb up in the side of this huge mountain along the Mediterranean coast. Uh, high end of Alapenas, which is like this just brutal wall. And then a couple of hard uh, climbs down there. And then coming into uh, Barranco, so that whole middle section of this Welta is going to be very hard. And I think it's going to be kind of a race of uh, attrition, really. I think you'll see riders, you know, uh, measuring their efforts because they know the last week up across northern Spain is where it's going to really be hard. So the question is, yeah, I mean, who will have the legs to go the distance during this Welta? Because, you know, Bernal, he hasn't raced since uh, the Giro. And then he got covid so, you know, we don't really know how uh, Bernal's going to be coming into this race either. Roglic maybe not uh, – didn't have the tour in his legs, but he has the, he had the tour fitness in his legs. I mean, he was looking very sharp at this tour before he crashed out. So that form, obviously, it paid off for him in uh, Tokyo, gold medal in the, in the individual time trial. So I think that Primos actually might be stronger than had he done the tour. We'll see. What I love about having this Picon Blanco summit finish – so early in the race is to, to me, one thing I'm always looking for in the Welta, especially in these early stages is like, it's not just a test of legs, but sort of this like test of spirit and motivation because, you know, everyone, a lot of the guys coming into it have done a grand tour already. Some of them have had success already in the year. Some of them aren't. So like on a stage like that, on a climb like that, where it's so steep and seemingly, I mean, it just looks painful. It looks very, it's a wall, you know, like, it's really going to decide sort of who's willing to go there that early. Because I think that that climb will absolutely ruin some guys' welta. Like, I don't think it's going to decide who wins, but it's absolutely going to shake loose the guys who maybe aren't there from a fitness perspective, but definitely the guys who aren't there from a, like a motivation and a mental perspective. So I'm really interested to see that stage. And, and like you said, you know, stage nine, stage 14, some of these these big, painful, punishing days with uphill finishes. But the one I really want to ask you about, Andy Hood, is this stage 19 with this um, new climb. And I always get so excited when like Grand Tour organizers come out with a messaging where it's like, we've discovered a new climb, you know, like they found Atlantis or like, you know, Robert Ballard has discovered the Bismarck or the Titanic or something like that, you know. Oh, we have found this new climb, this... uh Alto del Gaimanteru, you know, which it's there in um, uh, northern Spain, not far, not terribly far from where you are right now and not that far from the Angliru. Um, But I I have so many questions whenever something like this comes out, like 
how do you discover a mountain in Europe where every single hillside has had people climbing up it for thousands of years, where roads have been built for hundreds of years, where every inch of the topography has been mapped and like had goats herded over it. And then how do you decide to like put a bike race up there? So what can you tell us about that? And then also this this new climb, this like Angleru's like cousin. Yeah, it's a tongue twister. Gamonidairu. 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 It's something in Asturias, which they have a kind of a little funky twist on on Spanish. Um yeah, you know, these climbs, you're right. I mean, these climbs these climbs are around and being discovered kind of like, you know, Columbus discovering, uh, you know, North America. You know, like North America had been there for about 5 billion years. It's just that no one from Europe had seen it before. So these climbs are obviously around. They're well known within the cycling community. Um, you know, it's not like this road is a new road. The road's been up there. Uh, it's a bunch of radio tower, transmission towers are up at the top of this kind of just, you know, big hump there in northern Spain. And it serves as all the communities around there. So, uh, you know, a lot of the big question for some of these climbs sometimes is just logistics. You know, at the top of these climbs, there's not a lot of space for all the infrastructure that needs to go in to see a finish line at uh, of a Grand Tour. That's a that's a much bigger issue during the Tour de France, which has a much larger kind of caravan, a much larger footprint at the finish line. I remember a few years ago when they finished on the Galibier. They actually had to kind of split up the uh, finish line infrastructure between the climb goes up. There's actually a tunnel uh, in the side of the Galibier, and it kind of winds up on over the top. And they were able to kind of split up all the apparatus that goes into the finish line between those two areas. Whereas the uh, the wealth is a little more nimble. Uh, it's, it doesn't quite as have as much just stuff that it needs to bring. So that's why they've been able to do these climbs like uh, the Angliru and some of these other new climbs have discovered over the year, the the, the wall of Azaro, uh, as well as uh, Machucos a few years ago. And all these climbs, I mean, the cyclists know them. They've been out there. They're, all the local cycling clubs know them. In fact, that's how the Welta kind of learns about some of these climbs, is that uh, fans will reach out to the race or some of the race director, Escartin, and the staff there will reach out to some of their contacts within Spain it's a hey, you know, you guys got any climbs out there that could be good for the welter? We're looking for a new climb. You know, that last week in northern Spain, anything out there? And so they work their network of contacts, and they can find out about these places along the route. And it's really, I think, really, you know, brought a whole new level to Grand Tour racing, right? I mean, it kind of started with uh, the Zocalan and the Giro and the Angliro, you know, more than 10 years ago, 20 years ago, really revolutionized kind of modern Grand Tour racing, we've been seeing more of these so-called impossible climbs. And this is the latest one. And in fact, many people say this climb is harder than the Ngliru because it's longer uh, than the Ngliru, but it, it's it's not as steep. But that actually makes it harder because the, the Ngliru is so steep at certain sections, 25%, 27%. It's only so fast you can go. Whereas if you get a sustained climb of 10, 8, 12, 15%, very steep. But you know it's not so steep that you can't move the pedals and you can't keep your momentum going. And that's where you can make some big differences. But again, in some of these big climbs like this, the time gaps are not that big because we saw last year in the Angliro, remember when, when uh, Moss was up there dueling with those guys and Sepp was there. It's like you make an attack and you're only about four meters in front of somebody and you're just like burying yourself into the red zone and you're not getting a lot of real estate for that. So a lot of these sometimes more gradual climbs can prove more de- 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 decisive because they're not so steep. Still, though, I just love the storyline when they find one of these things. It's like when astronomers find a new, like, planet or something like that, you know? They're like, oh, we've discovered it. So I, I'm on this uh, website called dangerousroads.org, and uh, it describes the brutally steep road to Alto de Gamon, Gamon, Gamonitairo uh, as being extremely narrow with bad asphalt and concrete sections, a few potholes, and very steep. It is one of the most beautiful climbs in the area. The ramps really hit hard, getting up to 15% at the end of three ascending difficult three kilometers from blah, 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 blah. It sounds like it's hard. It sounds like it is brutal. 
um, really bad pavement, narrow pavement, which is one thing that I have always appreciated about the Angliru is that, yes, it's impossibly steep, but it's so narrow that it just squeezes the riders into this one line and it makes attacking really difficult. So positioning is key. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a similar thing play out here. And like you said, if the ramps are a little bit shallower, it might make it more tactical than just sort of this like brutal test of strength of who has the sort of the most explosive power at the end of the day to like get up and over the top. But it's it's up there. I am excited to watch this stage. The more and more I started uh, reading about it and how, you know, our, our friends in Spain discovered this mountain that apparently has all these radio t- towers on top. Um, it whetted my appetite to get to get all jazzed up to watch this bike race again. And then the race finishes off with a 33.8 kilometer time trial. So I expect to see all the pure climbers really trying to go for it on the Gaman Tairu and some of these other mountain stages uh, if they want to win. Um, cool. Well, Vuelta España, Andy Hood, we're right back into Grand Tour racing season. I feel like it never really left us. It never really did because the tour was just a little while ago. It's interesting this year um, because of the Olympics that, you know, the, the tour was it started in late June. So this year's Welta starts, you know, August 14th. And I think this is going to be the hottest Welta in several years. It's going to be a big factor in this race because remember last year, the Welta was in October into November. You know, it was almost, you know, cold. And uh, the last couple of years, the Welta has kind of stayed in the north. Uh, they've had some kind of milder weather. But man, all this week, it's going to be near 100 degrees. This weekend in Burgos, mid to high 90s. It's going to be very windy in that first week. A lot of heat. So that's going to be very decisive. And then going that whole second week into that second rest day, it could just be brutally hot temperatures down there. It's very muggy on the coast. And anytime they kind of dip inland, the thermometer just goes up. I mean, once you get into interior Andalusia down there on the coast, the temperatures can get over 100 degrees. And, of course, the stages are in the afternoon and the heat just radiates off that pavement. So I think the heat's going to be a big factor. And then you go back into northern Spain for the last week where it could be very cool. And sometimes if a front blows in, it can be just horrendous weather. We've seen, of course, uh, you know, just the rain and, and just some of these uh, storms pile up in the northern coast of Spain. So I think it's going to be a great Welta. I mean, the Welta really is the most exciting race of the Grand, you know, most unpredictable race. So we'll see. There's a good, good selection of Americans racing as well. So I think it's going to be a pretty fun race to watch start to finish. Yeah, I feel like uh, the last few years when we've had that ugly roost stage, it's just been like a brutal rainstorm terrible conditions, swirling wind. So I don't know, maybe the Gamontairu will uh, have a little different uh, different feel to it, a little zest to it this year. Uh, well, Welta begins this weekend. Andy will be at the race. Um, check out our Instagram page for his updates. And of course, check out VelaNews.com. And keep your eyes peeled for our Jennifer Valente interview, which will no doubt be happening soon. And hopefully we have her on the podcast soon. Uh, Andy, thank you so much for being a wonderful co-host we are now going to hear from lauren d crescenzo so listeners may not know this but um, lauren and i used to be neighbors mm-hmm. um, it's true. in colorado <laughs> and we would run into each other every now and again at the local coffee shop in fact it was a serendipitous meeting i remember i was there doing some work you were sitting I, on a I think couch. I saw you reading Velo News. I, and I asked you if you, hey, could you like watch my computer while I go to the bathroom? I've drank too much coffee. And we started a conversation. Yeah, that is exactly what happened. We started a conversation and you started telling me your story. And I was like, I've heard this story before. I've heard about this story before. I've heard about you. And then it was like, oh my gosh, like you are this girl who had this crazy story in cycling. Oh, yeah. The crash, the comeback you know, rehabilitation. You're this amazing success story in cycling that I had read about. And it was like, oh, this is just this person sitting next to me at the, the coffee shop. Coffee shop. <laughs> I used to do my homework there. <laughs> well, the crazy thing about it, Lauren, and we're going to talk <laughs> a lot of different topics today in the podcast, is that that was back in, I think, 2018. 20, I think, yeah, 2018. And like, even in 2018, your story was this amazing story in American cycling. It gets better. Well, yeah, since then, <laughs> yeah. your story has become even more amazing because we are talking to you in July. 2021 has been an amazing year for you. Oh, yeah. You won Unbound Gravel. You made the final breakaway at U.S. Road Nationals. So close, so close. So close. You were one of the stars mm-hmm. of the race. You got married. 
Yes. And you have now, you just told me, become, uh, re-become a full-time professional cyclist. Living the dream. And you're on the short list at all these gravel races and road bike races to win. And so, I mean, where I wanted to open up with you is as you look at your cycling career right now in 2021, I mean, do you, do you define yourself as a professional cyclist? Do you define yourself as a elite part-time cyclist? How are you defining yourself now as a cyclist? I think right now I'm actually going through like a redefining phase because I just put in my two weeks notice yesterday at my job where I'm at the CDC because I was also an epidemiologist during COVID, (laughs) which was, it was exciting. Last year was exciting too, I suppose. But yeah, I'm going through a redefinition phase where I thought I had, because I've done the pro cycling thing before and I thought that that ship had sailed. I went back to grad school. I got my master's degree. I was like, okay, time to focus on my career. But I never truly stopped cycling. I was just like riding through, riding through grad school and going really fast, winning races. And I was like, well this is fun. And now here we are again. (laughs) I just kept riding and here we are. (laughs) During that period, did you envision yourself ever having a professional cycling career again? Or did you think that, you know what, like, I have moved on with my life. I'm going to be a professional person, epidemiology, like cycling will be a hobby for me. At that point in your life, what did you think your long term future relationship with cycling was going to look like? I never thought that I could make it what it is right now. I didn't think that there was even this much like money to be made in women's professional cycling, but I learned differently when they offered me the same salary that I was making at my job. And so that was an opportunity where I could not say no to that ever. That was just to get, to get paid the same amount of money to ride your bike is amazing. (laughs) But no, I, I truly thought in my head, I was like, this is not a sustainable future. Like I can't make a living off of this. So I was trying to transition into like, you know, working 40 hours a week, doing the commute to work and being, I don't know, being a normal person. I was trying, but it just wasn't going very well (laughs) because I was still like rushing home from work every day or like getting up really early to ride Zwift, like all winter long. I was on Zwift all day or all night. And when I wasn't working, I was training or when I wasn't training, I was just at work. So nothing ever changed. Yeah, we had, we connected after you won Unbound, and one of the elements of that conversation that really stuck out with me was the fact that you were training for Unbound in a part-time basis. You said you estimated sort of like <laughs> 11, 12 hours a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all I had. And <laughs> when you think about 11 or 12 hours a week... It was very efficient training. Yeah. yeah, as it you know relates to this huge 200-mile race where we've been taught and told time and again, it's like you have to be doing... 150 mile days, humongous days, oh, hours upon hours no. of training. I mean, what if, what what did those 12 <laughs> hours a week look like for you as you were getting ready for Unbound? Right. Well, the 12 hours a week, if I was on my bike, I was doing intervals the entire time, which was like totally new to me. I'm used to like when I was in grad school or even before, I was just, just like going out and just like going spinning around. But like I had to be very, very efficient with my time to have like an actual job and to be training like this and to be doing all of this. I had to, if I was on my bike, I was training. If I wasn't on my bike, I was working. So I think that was like the theme of the last two, two two-ish years. What did like a long ride look for you? Your your once a week Um, long ride. How many hours would it be? Weekend rides could be longer, but like before Unbound, I only did like two or three, like six or seven hour rides. I've never ridden 12 hours in my life until Unbound, but like the intervals work. Like I didn't have a, like with just with the coaching program and just like having such like structured training and like being able to get like a bang for your buck out of every single moment you're on a bike. That really helps having the structured training plan. And do you think that's replicable for most cyclists? Or I mean, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. You have a lot of built up mileage in your legs, a lot of built up endurance. How much do you think it was like your own experience and your own, you know, history in the sport versus, you know, really targeted specific intervals? Oh, for that I mean, kind of, race? of course I have like a very long history of doing this. I've been doing, I've been riding my bike like this since I'm like 18 years old. And so, yeah, I have the miles in my legs for sure. But I was kind of just like doing whatever I wanted. I was like just making up my training on the fly. And like it wasn't very, it wasn't targeted at all. Like when I did Eversting and set that record last year, I was just 
I I was crying in the last two hours because I was so ill prepared for that. So I think that just the preparation and the training for an event makes it a much more enjoyable experience. There were no, there was no crying at Unbounds. So listeners who may not be familiar with Lauren's story, I suggest you go out and Google it because a number of uh, outlets have done some great reporting and great storytelling about um, Lauren's story up to this point. You know, Lauren famously was one of the really talented up and coming juniors and U23 riders in the USC cycling fold racing for, I believe it was DNA in uh, DNA um, cycling visit Dallas. And then um, at the San Dimas stage race, 2016? Uh, April 2nd, 2016. April 26th. Around 10 a.m. Yep. And um, finish line sprint. Yes. And you crash in the finish line sprint. Um, terrible, terrible crash. Horrible. Um, traumatic brain injury. Yes. You know, in a unconscious for... I was in a coma for like six days. Six days. And then it's, then, you know, you, you go to Craig Hospital outside of Denver, Colorado, this world-renowned rehabilitation center. Yes, I love Craig. And <laughs> you start yes. this... Years long yes. journey back, not just to be a cyclist, but really to, to be a, to be a human again. To be it's a whole a person, of, it took a lot of work. So, I, I've seen the photos. I don't have any memory of like most of the things like when I was at my like very lowest because I yeah after the crash I don't remember anything for the next month. But I just like see photos of myself like in a harness, just like trying to like learn how to walk again and learn how to balance. And going from that to like this is just insane. It is, and it, it, that journey itself could be like fifty podcasts. I mean, we could talk yeah, about yeah, we talk about that all day. Every totally single day, I was at the hospital. Every day, I was at the rehab center. Little, little yeah. detail of that, but you know, <laughs> some of the things that I wanted to drill down in that, Lauren, were um, first off, when when did you feel comfortable being on a bicycle again? And did you have uh, what was the fear like of getting back on a bicycle? And how did you work through that? Oh, there was some serious fear when I got out of the hospital. Well, I just hated cycling, or I thought I did. Like, at the hospital, there were, like, photos of bicycles, like, in the hallway, and they had to cover them because I was so upset. Because, like, that's what did this to me. That's, like, I blame the bicycle. But then I get out of the hospital. I try to quit for three weeks, but then I was like, I'm kind of bored. I kind of want to go outside. I kind of want to ride my bike. So, I mean, I started... I, I started on the trainer. I started on Zwift because they told me about Zwift and that was pretty fun. And then I just like, I couldn't hold myself back because I did, like I had defined myself as a cyclist my entire life in, it's just so fun that I just couldn't not do it. And I wasn't really training for anything in the first like two years. I was just out riding my bike and it was fun. What was the response of your loved ones, you know, parents? Oh, God. When you were like, hey, <laughs> what you know. What is the response of them now? Yeah. <laughs> or just like in that getting back on the yes. bike and sort of getting back to it. Like, how did they react to it? They still don't really like it that much just because I put my parents through a lot. Like, my whole family to see your daughter in a coma and to know, like, none of my parents aren't like cyclists at all. And they see that and they, they blame the bicycle and like me being on the bicycle is what's to blame for all this. So I, they think I'm crazy. I have no memory of it, so it's okay. <laughs> I, I like that I have no memory of that because maybe I would think it's crazy. But my parents, they support me because they know that it makes me happy and I love doing it. But like at the same time, they don't really like it that much. So I try to keep it all to a minimum how much I talk about cycling at home. And when you then began to reintegrate back into your regular life with things like studying and school, friendships, relationships. What were the elements of the TBI that you noticed the most? Like, you know, traumatic brain injuries, not like I've been told that all of them are different. No, there's no traumatic yeah, brain there's injury nothing the same. There's no cookie cutter no. traumatic brain injury. And there's the no, brain is very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no cookie cutter recovery process. No. A lot of it is time. And so what do you remember about the early hurdles you faced with with relationships and with just getting back into life? Huge, huge obstacles. Getting out of the hospital. I have never like one of the main symptoms of a TBI is like the depression. And that was like that. That was really bad. When I got out of the hospital and I was trying to reinvent everything, I, I, I really struggled with that. And just like being around people was hard. And I didn't know if anyone even wanted to be like around me anymore. And then I was, I was very, very depressed. So I had to do a lot of stuff to make that better with the depression because that is a symptom of traumatic brain injury. When you hit your head that hard, you oftentimes get very, very depressed. <laughs> so that was, I think that was the biggest symptom of everything. But then when I 
that's why I went to grad school. I was trying to reinvent my life. And I was like fighting through that depression, I think was the worst. But obviously learning how to walk again, learning how to balance, like when everything is taken away from you in one instant and you're like learning how to be a person again, it's very depressing. And you're like living in a rehab center. It's super depressing. I'm happy that I went now, but back then, no, you're not, you can't be happy living in a rehab center. So I wasn't happy. You know, it's funny because stories like this are stories that, you know, being a, a, an American in normal life, like you hear them, you hear stories yes. of like, oh, so-and-so like fought back from, you know, mm-hmm. this terrible tragedy or this horrible injury. Yes. And I'm sure as a kid or as a young person, you probably had heard come into contact right. with stories like oh, this. Yeah. I didn't want to be one of those stories. <laughs> How different was it living it compared to the stories you had heard, potentially heard before? Like you're in it, yes. you're coming back from it like... What was the the difference between, you know, hearing uh, the story of someone coming back from this and actually being in it? Actually being in it, I remind, I just, I heard those stories, but I felt like that was just like the tip of the iceberg, like everything else that's underneath, like all the pain and suffering, like underneath the surface of like, oh, this is a really great comeback story. Like it, it was just hard to really like connect the dots and just like, see myself in that lens at the time. And I remember back then, like, never forget how sad you are right now, Lauren. Never forget how much this sucks. And don't become one of those stories. I didn't want to be one of those stories. I didn't want to forget, like, the hardship that led to that point. And I still have done a good job. It was the worst, worst, like, two years of my life. When we talked on the phone the other day, I was asking you some questions about um, what were the the lingering effects that, that you felt that it took the longest to get over. And you were talking about being in some of these grad school classes and having to do math equations and having to focus and how, and how some of the things, you know, that you took for granted as a, as a scholar and as a person who was good at math, like it, it didn't come back immediately. Like, what do you remember about that? And how did you get through that? Well, my first week of grad school, that was, that was really tough. I don't know if it's because I was like just being a pro cyclist for so many years, <laughs> but going back, I, it was, it was partly the brain injury too, because I started grad school in 2017 and the hosp- the doctors at Craig said it would take two years to make a full, like to get back to your normal baseline brain level. So I was still suffering from like the memory loss and I would read a page in a book and I'd be like, what did I just read? Like that was hard. And like the math equations, I'm just pretty good at math, but not as good as I used to be at math. <laughs> it took a little bit more thinking. So yeah, I was registered with the disability office and grad school. I had extra time to do my tests so I could reread everything like 20 times. And I successfully got a master's degree after being registered with the disability office. <laughs> so when I met you, Lauren, in 2018 and, and you told this story. Um, I was studying that day. You were I was studying, studying there. <laughs> yep. And it struck me how... Um, when you told the story and when you told me who you were and some of the things that, you know, you had overcome, like you, you almost had this very sort of uh, positive or very proud way that you would tell this story. I mean, this story Mm -hmm. at face value is an amazing, is an unbelievable tragedy. I mean, it's a dark, dark story. Super dark, super, super dark. But the way that you would talk about it, even some of the ways you're talking about it now, it's like you would sort of seize on to the, the elements of the story that were very positive mm-hmm. and very uplifting. This is life. Yep. <laughs> and when you think about that, wh- why do you think that is? When you retell this story, like you went through right. agonizing hardship. Absolutely. And yet yeah. you're able to really, when you retell it, sort of focus on the lighter and brighter side of it and the recovery and right. not the like the depths of the depression the and then no, what you were in. No, 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 no. I don't want to linger on that and <laughs> the depths of the depression at all. <laughs> but I don't, in some ways I feel like it's very similar to cycling, like the, the hardship that you go through in one of these races. And I'm not focusing on that even when I talk about unbound. So I'm not like, oh, this part of the race was so hard. This was so hard. But I mean, I'm proud of the fact that I can get through these things and like have like make an inspiring story and like be gritty and be like the craziest person ever who never gives up. I like that's I don't know. That's where I get a lot of my like self-confidence from is just being very, very, very gritty. Do you find yourself defining yourself by it? By my grittiness? No, by the by the comeback, by the experience, by, you know, what you've experienced is something that I wouldn't want anyone to experience. No, never. And no, you've either. experienced it and been through it. And I'm, I'm curious how that manifests itself in the way you define yourself. 
I mean, I think I've always been very, very resilient and very, like, gritty. My dad said when I was in the hospital, like, <laughs> they were asking if I'd be back to normal. And he was like, he, he didn't even want to see. He's like, she's going to be normal in, like, a week. <laughs> she's crazy. She's just going to be back at it. She's going to get out of the hospital and she's going to be doing crazy things again. So, like, he knew I'd make a full, full comeback. If not, like, I think I've surpassed the comeback at this point. Like, I feel like a better cyclist now than I was before the crash. So, like, I've just always had, like, that kind of, like, that fire inside of me. And I don't know where it comes from, but it's still, it's always been burning inside. So, here we are. (laughs) Now, when we spoke after Unbound, you know, this was this momentous victory for you. Biggest result of your life in cyclist. And, you know, the you crossed the line. The first person you thank, your coach, Tom Danielson. And really, you know, when we talked about it, you talked about how a big part of you evolving as a cyclist and getting ready to this moment was joining this team, Tom Danielson, Cinch Cycling. Tell me about how the relationship came together, you and uh, Danielson. Right. Actually, it started, he has a podcast. It started because one of our mutual friends asked, um, the tour, the tour Poland crash happens with like the barriers and everything. And one of our mutual friends was like, you need to get Lauren DeGrasenzo on the podcast because she had a very similar crash at San Dimas and she could talk about race course safety for days. <laughs> so, I mean, I got on the podcast, I was talking about it. We were having a conversation. And then by the end, like it was just me, my husband and, and Tom and his wife just like hanging out, talking. And then he said he saw something inside of me Really, like, he could tell that like I, uh, he wanted me on his team. He was like, this girl's crazy. She needs to be on my team. He was starting a cycling team. He's like, this is who I need because she's crazy. What was it about Danielson that was compelling to you that made you want to join his team and work with him? I have never met anyone as excited about cycling as Tom Danielson. I thought I was the most excited person about cycling because my friends always make fun of me for like just all the intervals I'm doing and like all the crazy, like all the crazy things I'll do. And they think I'm crazy. And, but I've never met anyone as excited. So I was like, this is exciting. It was like entertaining. I was I was happy that I wasn't the most excited one about cycling anymore. <laughs> and just like, the, yeah, I mean, he's, he's been a really, really great coach. And I think in the Tom Danison front, everyone, he's really shown that he can be the amazing coach to, cyclists all around of all levels and now i asked you this the other day and you know i want to ask you out on the podcast too after you won and you know you thank tom danielson there was definitely some criticism out there in the cycling space because everyone knows you know everyone knows the story everyone knows tom danielson's background i mean you know he was part of the discovery channel team he's admitted to having used performance enhancing drugs so i'm curious when you were getting involved with tom if you were if that if that crept into your mind at all, were you worried about being associated with Tom? Were you worried about the reactions that people might have? Or did you have any second thoughts on your uh, own of what it would be like? I mean, I was more concerned about the reactions of other people. Like, Tom has never given me a reason to think that he, like, wants me to start, like, taking performance-enhancing drugs. That's, that's the last thing I think he would ever want from any of his athletes. It's like, oh, look, that's, <laughs> look, essentially, just taking a whole bunch of... That's crazy. Like, he's never given me a reason not to trust him and, like my athletic development and there's never been any pressure to do anything. So, I mean, it crept into my mind. I, I did my research. I'm a good researcher. And I was like, I read all the info and I was like, we've talked about it before and I have no reason not to trust the team. How did you work past the, um, the feelings of being worried about what people might think of you being, you know, working with Tom? Eh, I don't really care what other people think actually. <laughs> but, I mean, it was, it was a concern. I was like, Oh, how's this going to be taken by the public? But, it, uh, I think everyone, I think what he's trying to do right now is he's trying, he loves the sport. He wants, like, he's starting this team. He wants, like, to add to the sport. And I think everyone deserves a second chance. We all make mistakes every single day. Maybe not under so much public scrutiny as, like, uh, con- uh, being uh, convicted of that. But I think everyone can, like, make a comeback. It kind of reminds me of making my own comeback. And I think everyone deserves second chances. And I think he's proved to the world that he can be a different, I don't know, different version of himself. So the big news with that relationship is that um, the Cinch Cycling team is going to be able to pay you to be a full-time cyclist. You mentioned at the top of the show, you know, (laughs) you're now a quote-unquote professional cyclist and then that is how you are earning your living. (laughs) 
I know. My official start date is August 1st, and my last day at CDC is July 30th, so I'll be unemployed for one day. <laughs> so let's talk about the aftermath of that race. You know, we oh, interviewed you at the finish line. Yes, you know, yes. you're emphatic, this wonderful victory. Like, how long did it take to process the fact that you had just won the biggest <laughs> gravel event on the planet? I it took eh, I'm still processing it I think right now uh, I it took me about a week until I decided I was going to quit my job I thought I was going to maintain the the full-time like CDC thing and the full-time cycling thing but then I realized that that's insane that I don't there's not enough hours in the day to do both of those things so I had to go on a I went on a bike ride I think that next Friday just a ride by myself just an easy ride and I was like wow I just won Unbound. I think I need to quit my job. <laughs> and to like, and I just got married. So it was tough to have like a new marriage and a career and trying to be a pro cyclist. But I didn't come to terms with that until maybe like a week later. And I was like, whoa, what? whoa, that just happened. Yeah. And I would imagine like interview requests are coming <laughs> yeah, in. People week, are roaching it, week. reaching out and all over like, the place. And I was like, all my lunch breaks. I was like, well, I can only do it at this time because I don't have any meetings at work. <laughs> Yeah, oh, <laughs> that was a rough week. <laughs> and then I wasn't even trying to tell my job. And then they're like, some like email blast went out to everyone in my division. <laughs> oh, did they blast it out? Lauren, you yeah, one of the, yeah, one of the cyclists who's like the head of the whole like department that I'm in is like, Lauren just won the Tour de France of gravel, everyone. And I was like, oh, no, you told everyone. <laughs> they're like, no one was supposed to find out about that. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's great! Did people did it resonate with people, or were people yeah, like, "Oh, said, that's great"? Oh yeah, my 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 cousin Dave's a cyclist right. too. Right, I mean that's that great. had been happening the entire time I was working, but then as soon as everyone knows the Tour de France is, yeah. so as soon as they said in those terms, they're like, "Oh wow, why is she still work here?" <laughs> so I got a lot of support from everyone at work to be like, "Okay, pursue your dream." So that that helped. That helped a lot. That they like sent out a media blast, <laughs> an email blast. It was like, "Yeah, why is Lauren still working here?" What's next in the dream then? When you think about, you know, how far you've come, how far you've come in one year, like what, uh, what are the, the goals and accomplishments and things you would like to do on a bicycle um, coming up? In the immediate future, uh, well, I guess I just want to like crush all these gravel races and just like keep like doing inspirational, inspirational things like gravel races and just like being super, super, super gritty. But like my big, big goals... Uh, you know, where is it? Where is it in Paris, twenty twenty four? That's my goal. I want to be the best at time trialing in America. I mean, I got, I got. So this year, I got seventh at US Pro Nats, but I got, I, I got a TT bike like six weeks before. There's a lot of room for improvement. So that's like my big overarching goal. Like that's the dream. That that would be amazing. So like work towards that that'll keep me that'll keep me riding every day yeah well yeah. 200 mile tt is a little different than the uh, customary uh, 25 <laughs> mile tt as well i love the tt though i was treating the unbound like a tt so i love the time trials i love the long gravel races because they are time trials well that's a heck of a goal lauren and i, mean, I know i just said that on the podcast that's yeah. that's what wakes me up in the morning that's why i get out of bed in the morning <laughs> well lauren i appreciate you uh sharing so much of your story on the podcast you've been a wonderful guest open door policy you can come on the, the Vel news podcast whenever you would like yes